Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to find your way to Mark chapter 9, to the passage that was just read for us a moment ago, Mark chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, know that there are some scattered throughout the room under some of the chairs. If you do not own a Bible, know there's one provided, there are some provided on the table in the foyer. We'd love to, for you to grab one on your way out today. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the scriptures, Mark chapter 9. In the 16th century, many of you may be aware, is when the uh, Protestant Reformation occurred, and it occurred in large part because of the lightning rod that Martin Luther was. He was a catalyst that God used to uh, awaken the church in that day and in that era up to the realities of grace and to the realities of the gospel and to return to the sufficiency and the authority of, of the scriptures and A lot of it hinged upon Luther's teaching and Luther's preaching. He was a pastor and he preached on a regular basis. And after doing so for quite a while, there was a moment where some members of the church that he pastored and served, they approached him one day and they asked him the question, uh, Luther, why do you keep preaching the gospel? Why is it that week after week after week, all you ever do is preach and teach the gospel? And the question uh, gave that crazy implication that they were ready to move on to something else as if there really is something else to move on to and as if they uh, somehow got the gospel and they didn't need it anymore. They were ready to graduate, so to speak, to some deeper teaching or to some more enlightened teaching. And then Luther, in a way that only he could, just given the things that I've read written by him and what we know of his personality and those types of things, given his biographers and that type of stuff, he He responded, well, it's because week after week you forget it. It's because week after week you walk in here looking, it seems, like a people who do not really believe the gospel. And until you walk in looking like people who are truly liberated by the truth of the gospel, I'm going to continue to preach it to you. And he says elsewhere, I'm going to keep hammering it into your heads until you get it. Now, if you're new to the Hallows Church, and if you've been journeying with us for some time now, you, you know that we are a community of faith, that if we have one ambition, if we have one dream, if we have one desire, it's to be a community of faith in this city that is utterly infatuated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be utterly infatuated with the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. We want to celebrate the fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, reigning and ruling over every inch of the cosmos. And we want to anticipate the day when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom in the fullest and final sense. And we want to be infatuated with that storyline. We want to square our hearts up well on the reality of the gospel and all that God is for us in Jesus and the beauties of his grace and the types of lives that his grace and his gospel compels us to lead. We want to be infatuated with the gospel. We want the gospel. Several years ago, about four and a half years ago now, when we started the Hallows Church, originally in the Fremont neighborhood, and since then we've moved into West Seattle so that now we have a couple of expressions where people are gathering and worshiping and rallying around the gospel under the banner and the identity of the Hallows Church. And and four and a half years ago, when we set out on that process and we sought to plant the Hallows Church. It was really one question that drove myself and others who were involved in those early days. And it was the question, what type of church will result if the gospel sits not simply at the theoretical center of a church's identity, but if the gospel resided in the functional center of a church's identity? 
Meaning what type of church would produce? What type of lives will we lead? What type of worship will we engage in? What type of ministry will we execute? What type of blessing will we be to the city of Seattle and beyond if the gospel actually sat not at the center of our existence theoretically, but at the center of our existence functionally? And so you might say that the whole Hallows Church history and the Hallows Church's existence has been one long experiment of trying to answer that question. What does it mean for the gospel to occupy the functional center of our church? What does it mean for us to be a people who are utterly infatuated with the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? What, would it, what will it mean for us to be the types of people who never get over that reality? who never naively think that there's something to graduate to as followers of Christ. Well, the gospel, that's what saves us. But now let's move on to some other deeper doctrine or some other uh, more splendid reality. We, we, We don't ever want to go in that direction. And to be honest with you, I don't think Jesus ever wants us to consider going in that direction. You see this in the example he sets out in the book of Mark. Particularly when you step into Mark chapter 9, you see this moment where Jesus and his disciples are traveling from uh, Caesarea to Capernaum and they're en route to the ultimate destination of Jerusalem. And in this passage, verses 30 through 32, we see that Jesus is emphatic about centering the disciples' awareness upon his crucifixion and his resurrection. He says in verse 31, that, we were, that he, Jesus, was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now this is the second time that Jesus has explicitly made this statement, and he's taught his disciples about the necessity of his death and resurrection, saying, this is what I've come to do. This is what my kingdom centers on, and ultimately this is going to be the message you will bring forth to all people Everywhere, And so he reiterates this message, and this is the second time, and he'll do it a third time later. And, and I, think what Jesus is do, I think that what Jesus is doing here is he is emphasizing for his disciples, and by extension, you and I today, he's emphasizing the fact that our lives and our church must be centered on the gospel. But what's interesting about the way that this passage unfolds is right after he talks about his being delivered over and crucified and, and then his resurrection, immediately after this, we find the disciples talking about things that reveal, that reveal that they just don't get it, that they don't understand the gospel, that the gospel is not occupying the functional center of their lives and of their community. So you get into verse 33 and you find them, the disciples, as they came to Capernaum. Capernaum, And when he was in the house, Jesus then asked them, what what are you discussing on the way? What what have you guys been talking about? A heated debate has has arisen amongst the disciples and Jesus is fully aware about what what they're arguing over. He knows what's going down, but he asked the question trying to bring this confession out of them. But it says in verse 34 that they kept silent. They didn't want to disclose what they had been discussing because they know how embarrassing it is to talk about greatness when you're in the presence of Jesus. Why would you talk about your greatness if you're in the presence of Jesus? And this is precisely what they're arguing about. And Mark tells us that they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Now, when it comes to the gospel occupying the center of the functional center of our church and of our lives as disciples, when There are some things that we're going to see in this morning's passage that show what happens when the gospel ceases to do that. 
when the gospel ceases to be central. And this is something we want to constantly revisit as a church to make sure that we are being the people Jesus has called us to be and that we're being the church that we believe Jesus has called us to be in this city. And, and the first thing I'd like to point out is that if the, when the gospel ceases to be central, then all of a sudden greatness is no longer defined by service, but by status. When the gospel ceases to be central, greatness is no longer defined by service but by status. This is what the disciples are arguing over. They just heard the gospel. They were just instructed about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And now they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Because when the gospel ceases to be central, greatness is no longer defined by service but by status. Now, this whole conversation that the disciples are having in this moment, this isn't a foreign conversation. It isn't a foreign concept. In fact, a hierarchy of honor and status of prestige just kind of permeated all of, Jew- all of Jewish life in the first century. Jesus was very much aware of people's infatuation with status and honor and recognition. This is why earlier, in, or in another gospel, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus indicts the Pharisees and the rulers of that day. He indicts them for being overly infatuated with their own status and with their own reputation, with their own honor. He, he says in chapter 23, verse 6, that you guys, are, you guys are in love with the place of honor at feasts. You fight over the best seats in the synagogue. You, you worry about how you're greeted in the marketplace. You, you want to make sure people know you as rabbis and they address you as such. And so there was this debate, among, or there was this clamoring for status, there was this clamoring for honor. This was a, a, a deeply rooted desire in the Jewish culture for honor and status and recognition. So they would often argue over who would occupy the best seats in the synagogue. And in the first century, when you entered into, into the synagogue on the Sabbath for worship, the best seats were up front. You wouldn't believe that given how we, how we do things here at the Hallows, the best seats tend to be in the back. That's why there's always so much space up here. But in the synagogue, there, there was competition to get up close, to be in the front, to occupy the best seats. But then not only in the synagogues, it would also happen when you throw a lunch party like we're going to do later on today. You want to make sure you're, you're seated at the head of the table. You put the most honorable person there. That's your place. That's your occupation. That's where you should be if you are the most honorable person in the community. There, there was a conscious awareness of honor and status and recognition. And this whole Desire also showed up in how the Jewish leaders insisted upon being identified as rabbis. This would be like a PhD insisting that you refer to him as such. This would be like me insisting that you call me doctor. And if you ever call me anything other than doctor or something other than pastor, then you're going to be corrected because that any type of other designation or recognition would not uh, be worthy of who I am in a particular social setting or an environment or a culture. This is how the rabbis and the Jewish leaders were wired. And the disciples have been affected by that environment. Their hearts beat in the same direction according to the same rhythms. And so they thought perhaps since they were close to Jesus, since they were the founding disciples, the founding apostles, since they were the ones journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem, then they amongst themselves would be, uh, it would be, Certain select individuals amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, who would be in charge when Jesus leaves, or who would take things and occupy, again, a position of status and honor and recognition. 
And this whole infatuation with divisions and categories of important and less important, even unimportant, that whole infatuation plagued the early church. Not long after Jesus was resurrected and he returned to took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father and the church started learning how to be the church in the world. There were, there were arguments often in the church over status and recognition and honor. There was deference given to people who, uh, you might say, people of means being preferred over people who did not have any means. So much so that James would even write in his letter, James chapter 2, you listen to the words that he would, or the instructions that he would give to the early church James chapter 2, you'll see these words on the screen, but he, but he has to tell the church this. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, it's this insidious infatuation with status and categories and preference and prestige that Jesus indicts not only in his example, but he indicts in his instructions to his disciples. This is the balloon that Jesus is popping. This is, this is the uh, course correction that Jesus is giving in this moment so that he would say in verse 35, after sitting them down and calling them close to give them a very important lesson so that they would know how they're to go about their days. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he gives that instruction. He's reminding us that in the kingdom of God, a person's honor comes through humility. He's reminding us that in the kingdom of God, greatness comes not due to your status in a community or your status in a city or your status in life. He's reminding us that greatness comes through service. Honor comes through humility. So Augustine, when he was commenting on this text many, many, many years ago, he would say that discipleship grows first by a downward lowly movement as a tree seeking roots in order to reach skyward. What he's getting after and what he's driving at. He's saying if the gospel really is the center of your life and if the gospel really is the center of your church, you will be a humble people who seeks greatness not by way of status but greatness by way of service. I love the fact that though Jesus knew they were arguing over this issue of greatness, Jesus did not step in and say that greatness was not to be desired. He doesn't say, stop talking about greatness. Instead, he redefines greatness for them, helping them to see where greatness is really found, that honor comes through humility, that greatness is found when we take up our towels and we wash one another's feet, when we serve each other the way we have been served in the gospel. So he's describing humility here. And part of the problem, the reason why our heart tends to uh, push back against this, not not in an explicit sense, we're not going to tell people that service is bad and we're not going to tell people that humility today isn't honorable. I think in the church, we're kind of conditioned over time to think, yeah, service is good and humility is great, but we just kind of get sneaky with it and we, we, uh, we would never say what we're really feeling about some of those things and we're never going to discredit the reality of service and the reality of humility in the kingdom of God but 
But that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle through these things and we, that our hearts aren't pushing back in some direction. And one of the reasons why our hearts do push back in a practical sense is because we misunderstand. We misunderstand humility and we misunderstand the beauty of, of service. You see, there's a difference between serving other people because you are servile and there is a difference between serving because you are servile and serving because you are secure. There's a world of difference between being servile and being secure. You know what the word servile means, right? The word servile means to excessive, is an excessive willingness to serve and to please others. It's an excessive infatuation with pleasing others. To know what servile is, all you have to do is watch Star Wars. Because to be servile is what those British chaps were doing on the Death Star every time Darth Vader came around. They were servile in that moment. They acquiesced to Vader's power. They did not believe Vader was merciful. They believed he was merciless. And so none of them wanted to get choked out. So every time he came around, they straightened up and they started doing their business. That's servile. They had an excessive willingness to serve and to please others. Usually when they engaged in that, it was out of fear or because they wanted to earn some type of status or in the very least maintain a type of status within their community. To serve out of being servile is completely different from serving because you are secure. Those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, if you are a citizen in the kingdom of God, we do not serve, we do not pursue this type of greatness because we are servile. We serve and we pursue this type of greatness because we are secure. We serve because we've been given a status in Christ that cannot be shaken. We serve because we've been given a security in the gospel and a value in the gospel that cannot be cannot be taken down any notches. We serve from a sense of security and that makes all the difference because this means that we can now choose to honor other people before ourselves. We can willingly honor other people before us. We can willingly take the back seat. We can willingly stop calling shotgun every time we go out to eat with our friends. We can willingly give up the best seat at the table. We can willingly come and sit up front in our worship gatherings, right? This is the dynamic that Jesus is getting after. There's a difference between serving because we're servile and serving because we are secure. The former serves out of fear, whereas the latter serves out of joy. The former serves in order to look good, but the latter serves in order, other, in order to help others look good. The former serves out of, out of cowardice. The latter serves out of courage. The former delights in telling everyone just how you are last. This, this type of false humility, this servile attitude that loves pointing out the areas in which we are weak and loves telling everybody, we kind of lead with what we're bad at. And we just say, well, I don't, can't do that because I'm bad at this. And, and we, we listen to people kind of demean themselves and, to, and put themselves down. It just becomes annoying and is unbecoming of anyone who is secure in Christ, and so we don't want to lead with what we're bad at. We want to champion God's grace in us, and we want to champion God's grace in others. We want to help other people feel like they are first. We want to help other people feel like they are best. And when every one of us assumes that type of other-oriented posture, you realize the beauty that we would portray as the people of God in this city? When we're no longer marked out by self-obsession, 
but we're marked out by the humility of self-forgetfulness where we're not occupied with who we are and how we're being perceived and what roles we're given in a particular community. We're just serving and loving, serving and loving, serving and loving, seeking the best for everyone around us and taking the back seat, knowing we're secure in Christ so we don't have to clamor with each other for any type of recognition. So in verse 36, Jesus then takes up this example after, after laying out this dynamic of being a servant of all and being last of all and, and putting service on the forefront of greatness. He says in verse 36, it says that he took a child and put this child in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now, when Jesus does this, it's fascinating that Jesus, in this conversation, he, he grabs a child and he pulls the child forward and he starts using the child as an example. Now, sometimes when we read about Jesus' interactions with children in the gospel, sometimes we draw the conclusion that, that what he's doing is he's giving us a picture of what it means to be humble or he's giving us a picture of what it means to be uh, uh, simple or whatever the case may be. Understand that when Jesus pulls this child forward and he presents the child as an example, he's not saying humility means to, humility is tied to you becoming like a child in this instance. He's saying that humility is tied to how you treat this child. In other words, he's taking a person, the society of his day considered to be unimportant and insignificant. You see, in the first century Jewish world, children did not come attached with all the sentimental garments, all the sentimentality that we attach to children today in our culture. That did not exist in the first century. They did not have Disney. They did not have Pixar. They did not value kids the way our society tends to value kids. They, they didn't have those issues. So we live in a day that, where the home isn't necessarily a matriarchy it's not necessarily a patriarchy it's not really mom centric or father centric in a lot of homes with kids today it's more kinder <laughs> it's centered on the kindergartners right it's a kindergarten right everything centers around the kids they drive the schedules they drive the budget everything is about the kids they are they tend to occupy the center piece of the home that was utterly foreign in the first century Children were not sentimental. Children were not warm and affectionate uh, blessings, generally speaking. Children were viewed as being insignificant, as being unimportant. Children did not have a discernible status in the society until their dad recognized them through some formal ritual, and that ritual wasn't their birth. That ritual would happen later, maybe when they were age 12, and, and they would move through a particular ritual or routine that they had in place so that they'd be recognized as a, as a functioning member of society. So when Jesus takes this child and he puts the child forward as an example, he's, he's doing something radical. He's saying, this is the perspective you need to have as my disciples, as citizens in my kingdom, that humility comes not when you become like a child. Humility comes in how you treat the child. In other words, humility comes in how you treat the less important. Humility comes with how you treat those society deems to be insignificant. Humility comes in how you treat those society says are burdensome or inconvenient. 
If the gospel is going to occupy the center of our church, we must become a church that goes to the defense of the defenseless. And we must be the types of disciples that view those that society disregards and casts away. We want to embrace them. We want to welcome them. We want to pursue them. We want to serve them. Jesus is removing the category of important and unimportant. He's saying you As my followers, you are to serve those who might not be able to contribute anything to your livelihood. See, one of the unique factors about kids, and those of you who are moms and dads, you know this to be true, that that one interesting fact about kids, one realization I'm learning now with the three that I have at home, is that kids, they don't always recognize the sacrifices parents make on their behalf. They just don't see it. They don't get it. They they don't, they don't thank mom and dad easily. They don't thank mom and dad naturally. Everything that kind of comes to them from mom and dad, it's kind of expected, right? Well, you are my mom and dad. You're supposed to take care of me. Meanwhile, mom and dad are making all types of sacrifices, pouring whatever they can into helping these kids grow and to become responsible human beings who, who are raised well. And, and kids just don't recognize the sacrifices made on their behalf. And kids require far more than they're able to give back and they're able to return. Do you understand that when Jesus puts this child front and center, he's impressing upon his disciples the significance of honoring people who cannot honor you in return. Loving people who might not love you in return. Serving people who cannot, might not attribute anything to your status in society Or benefit you in any discernible way. He's saying you are to love and to serve the least of these. The most who society deems to be unimportant and insignificant. This is who you target in your humble service. This is where greatness is found. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. Just in light of this reality that Jesus is putting out. That when the gospel ceases to be central. Greatness is no longer defined by service but by status. Just ask yourself a couple of questions to to see whether or not the gospel is occupying the center of your discipleship. Do Do you only serve when you are assured of recognition? Do you only serve when you are assured of recognition? Perhaps you have conditions to your service. Well, if you don't hear a thank you, then you're gonna stop serving. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be grateful and express gratitude to those who are serving and doing things we should but the question is is your service dependent upon other people's gratitude is your service dependent upon other people's recognition and other people's praise if it is that may indicate that the gospel is not occupying the functional center of your discipleship and then secondly you might ask yourself this do you only serve those who can improve your status Do you only serve those who can improve your status? Do you see the people around you as stepping stones to be elevated in the eyes of others? Or, like Jesus, have you come to serve the least of these and love those who aren't necessarily loving him in return? Are you serving even those who can't improve your status or contribute anything to your livelihood? This is the challenge of discipleship that Jesus is laying out in this moment. And if the gospel is going to be the center of our church and of our discipleship, this is the type of service we want to engage in. But there's a second thing that we see in this text. When the gospel ceases to be central, yes, greatness is no longer defined by service but by status. But then the second thing you see in verses 38 through 41 
is that competition begins to replace celebration in the kingdom of God. Competition begins replacing celebration in the kingdom of God. In verse 38, Mark points out John, and he, as John, he remembers this conversation of John coming up to Jesus and the rest of the disciples, and listen to what he says. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following, and get this, us. He put himself in the category of leadership, almost as though he's a mediator between this guy's ministry and Jesus, not knowing that this guy can relate to Jesus without John being in the picture. But John's like, this guy's not a part of our crew. He's not following us. And so he tries to stop him. So he tries to stop the guy from serving, but then Jesus says, don't stop him. And he gives several reasons why in verse 39. He says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, what's interesting about this exchange is that John is worried. He's somehow threatened by this unknown disciple, this unnamed person who's serving the kingdom of God. He's doing things that Jesus and his disciples were doing. So obviously God's grace was at work in this guy's ministry. John sees that and, and he's threatened by it. He tries to put a stop to it. But what's really interesting about it is that this guy is now succeeding where John and the other disciples had recently failed. Do you see it there? He, he, he's casting out demons. He's doing mighty works. And you remember last week's passage. The disciples tried to exercise a demon from a little child and they fail. They can't do it. And so this guy comes along and he's succeeding where they failed. And rather than celebrating God's grace in this guy, celebrating his faith in the Messiah, they're competing with it. They want to stop it. They want to micromanage it. They, it is clear that the gospel is not occupying the center of John's awareness in this situation. And any time competition begins to replace celebration in the kingdom of God, it means the gospel is not occupying the central focal point of a, church's, of a church's existence or of a disciple's life. And so when Jesus corrects them, he says in verse 41 that if you get just a little bit of help from this guy, you should be thankful, you should be grateful for any type of manifestation of the kingdom's power Regardless of where it comes from and regardless of where it comes through, be grateful. Celebrate it. Don't try to compete with it. And the whole exchange is reminiscent of what goes down in the book of Numbers earlier in the Old Testament. There's a scene where Moses has established leadership in Israel and Moses is the man and he's the leader. He's, he's kind of leading out in that day and, and he's pulled some officials. He's given some uh, certified roles amongst the people, some leadership roles and responsibilities, but there were two guys who weren't included in the formal role or the formal leadership process. And these two guys began going around and they started prophesying and, and preaching and they were having, they were making an impact, positive influence. And listen to what happens in Numbers chapter 11. Again, the passage will step up on the screen. It says in verse 26, now two men remained in the camp one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. So the Spirit of the Lord, the same Spirit that was operating in Moses, is now resting upon these two guys. And it says they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, 
Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said this, my Lord Moses, stop them. Echoing, John's saying the same thing, telling Jesus, put a stop to what these guys are doing. But listen to how Moses responds. Moses said to them, are you jealous for my sake? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. He wants everybody doing the types of things those two guys were doing. And there's a sense in which Jesus wanted everyone doing the types of things this unknown, unnamed disciple was doing. The kingdom of God was advancing and the disciples should have been celebrating that rather than trying to compete with it. You know the gospel has ceased to be the center of your life and the center of our church when competition replaces celebration in the kingdom of God. And so let me ask you, can you, can you rejoice in the advancement of the kingdom of God even if it happens in unlikely places through unlikely people? Can you rejoice when you hear truth coming from someone who's not like you? Can you rejoice when you hear the gospel proclaimed, even if the gospel is coming out of the mouth of someone who's not a part of your tribe, a part of your clique, a part of your community? Can you rejoice if you ever hear truth coming out of the mouth of a Republican or a Democrat, a Presbyterian or a Baptist? Can you rejoice over truth coming out of the mouth of someone who's not a part of your immediate circle of community or your immediate clique or whatever the case may be? Jesus here is trying to broaden his disciples' perspective on the power of the kingdom of God. Saying that grace can come through anyone who's trusting and believing the Messiah and rather than competing with any of that, we should celebrate all of it. Who do you have a hard time learning from? Who do you have a hard time receiving blessing from? Who do you have a hard time being served by? That might indicate where the rub is in your heart. So competition should not replace celebration in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a couple of questions in light of this. Is your faith less about God's grace and more about your glory? Is your faith less about God's grace and more about your glory? Let me ask you, are you threatened by other people's influence and effectiveness? Are you threatened when somebody shows up to missional community and they have a little bit more of a knowledge of the scriptures than you do? Are you threatened when somebody heeds another person's advice, although you've been given the same advice for months and somebody else steps up and they share that advice, all of a sudden they're listening now and you're like, what's going on? Are you threatened by that? Are you frustrated by that? Or are you celebrating the fact that the truth was heard finally, fruitfully? Are you threatened by other people's influence and effectiveness? Many of you have heard of Stephen Colbert. You know that in 2011, he was, uh, that's about when he stepped, uh, stepped out of uh, hosting the, the Late Show. And that same year, he delivered a commencement address at his alma mater, Northwestern University. And he talked about the whole dynamic of improv in comedy and how he used to be engaged in improv. And I want to share with you what he says about improv because I think it paints a beautiful picture of what we should be going after here. He said this, you know, after I graduated, I moved to Chicago and did improv. Now, there are very few rules about improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. 
And if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too, so hopefully to them you're the most important person. And they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following the follower, serving the servant. You cannot win improv, and life is improvisation. You see, the rules of improvisation reflect the preferred priorities of leadership and ministry and service in the kingdom of God. The reality is no one wins in Christian leadership, no one wins in Christian ministry because Christian leadership and ministry is not a competition. Our participation is a privilege awarded to us by the grace of God and his grace towards us renders all prospects of human boasting, all prospects of human competitions futile. Our only boast as followers of Jesus is in the cross of Christ, his death and his resurrection. That is what we cling to. That is what we center our lives upon. We do not compete against each other for anything in the kingdom of God. Not status, not recognition, not disciples, not churches, not baptism, nothing. We do not compete over anything. Instead, we step back and we celebrate one another's faithfulness to the gospel and we credit all forms of fruitfulness to the grace of God towards us in Jesus. But if the gospel ceases to be central in your life and it ceases to be central in this church, that dies away. So we want to be other-oriented, thinking along these lines. So let me just ask them the question, how does the gospel continue to be central in the life of our church and in your life as a disciple? And just give you two practical takeaways to consider as you wrestle through what Jesus is teaching in this passage. The first thing, in order for the gospel to continue to be central, is you must be a disciple who studies the gospel of Christ in the context of community. You must study the gospel of Christ in the context of community, not just once, but over and over and over again. This is the thrust of verse 30. When Jesus is walking with his disciples, and in verse 31, he's teaching them, he's instructing them, and the word there is this this movement. He's constantly telling them this message, that he must be crucified, he must rise again. He's repeating the same lesson, the same message, over and over and over again. But then you look at verse 32, it says they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him. You see, if you and I are going to study the gospel of Christ in the context of community, we must not be afraid to ask questions. If there's something you don't understand about what's being said or what's being taught, do not be afraid to ask questions. We welcome questions. We welcome those who are wrestling with the reality of the gospel. You will not be shut down for asking questions in this church. Jesus would not have shut down his disciples for asking for more clarification. They just refused to ask because they did not understand Jesus' grace and his goodness and his patience. So let me assure you, if you have questions about the gospel, questions about the things of our faith, don't be afraid to ask them. But here's the challenge. As you begin to ask questions and you begin to study the scriptures and answers are provided from the scriptures... There must be a willingness on your part to submit to the answers that the Bible gives with regards to your questions. Sometimes we ask questions, we go to the Bible for answers, we discover an answer, we don't like the answer, so we bail. If you're going to ask questions... There must be a willingness on your part to submit to the answers the scriptures provide. 
Now, the Bible doesn't answer every question you might ask. But the Bible does answer every question you need to ask. And the Bible gives answers to what you need to know about who God is, about who you are, about the state of the world, and about where everything's heading. Therefore, when we're asking questions, we want to be submissive to what the Bible says and then humble enough to let's, if God hasn't spoken on something, to remain silent on it. But if God has spoken on something, to submit to it. We have to study the gospel in the context of community if the gospel is going to stay the central focal point of our discipleship and of our church. But not only do we want to study the gospel of Christ in community, we want to savor the service of Christ in humility. We want to savor the service of Christ in humility. In other words, if you're going to be a servant... If you're going to find honor through humility, if you're going to start celebrating the grace of God, not only towards you, but towards others as well, it's going to require you to savor the service of Christ. Meaning, in John chapter 13, there's a moment as the disciples are entering Jerusalem, Jesus sits them all down and he goes one by one washing each and every one of their feet, serving them in this incredible gesture of deference, of love, of humility. But there was one disciple who resisted Jesus' service, a guy named Peter. He steps up and says, no, you you can't wash me. That's unbecoming of you. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, if I don't serve you, you can't participate with me. If I can't serve you, you can't be with me. And then Peter said, okay, well, wash all of me. Get my head, get, get everything. He was all about it then. And the picture is this. The Christian life doesn't begin with you starting to serve. The Christian life begins with you starting to be served. You've got to let yourself be served by the Son of God. You've got to let the fact that he lived a life that you could not live and he died the death that you should have died and that he rose from the grave, you've got to let that reality wash over you. You've got to let the Son of God serve you And as you are served by the Son of God, all of a sudden you will find the type of security needed to start serving those around you. You will find the resource within you to celebrate God's grace in the lives of those around you rather than trying to compete with it or envy it or whatever the case may be. We want to savor the service of Christ. Again, this is why every week we proclaim the gospel Because every week we want to hammer it into our hearts that we have been served by the Son of God through his life and his death and his resurrection. And as we're savoring that reality, we'll start imitating and echoing that reality in our church and in our lives. And the gospel will occupy the center position of our church. Let's pray in that direction. Father, I ask that you would give us grace to take in these truths and to be transformed by them. I pray, Jesus, that your gospel would be the centerpiece of our church and the centerpiece of our discipleship. I pray that humility and service and celebration would spring up in the life of this church and that we would live out the kind of lives your gospel compels us to live. 
Father, we are asking and we are praying this all in Jesus' name. Amen.